As we introduce his story, the New Testament, we need to take a look again at the pieces to the puzzle that we have been able to fit together so far as we continue discovering God's story of glory and grace. Dave Wurtzen, our study leader, addresses the most important question you will ever need to be able to answer. What do you do on a rainy day? Well, some families go over to Walmart, like Nora and I did yesterday, and you get one of these puzzles. Here's a Norman Rockwell puzzle. And uh, Nora wondered what her papa was doing, but we were looking all over Walmart to find one of these. Because on a rainy day, this is a great thing. And what you do is at the rainy day, you get a, a big table out, and you take one of these puzzles out, and you got to open it up. It took me several hours to get this box open. They want to be sure that you don't get it open. In fact, some of you might have seen me. Sorry, during worship, Corby, I was trying to get my puzzle open. Now, what do you do? The first thing you do, especially if you're my family, you just dump all the pieces down, all right? Because you, and you usually have a table. Some of you might do this on a floor. And the basic idea here is what's the next thing you do? All of you look at the cover to the puzzle, right? And that's going to be your guide. Now, the, the next thing you do is you look to the cover of the puzzle you begin to go down here and you've got to try to find some pieces that have that straight edge to it, right? So you want to find a whole bunch of those pieces and I'm probably not going to be able to... Oh, here's another one. And you get... How many of you... That's the way you begin to do the puzzle. Well, the Word of God that we've been studying, we begin to think about His story, the Old Testament, and today we're going to launch His story, the New Testament... I want you to think about the idea that it's like the Lord is calling for you to put together a big puzzle. Now, as New Testament believers, you have the picture on the box. So you need to keep that in mind as you read back through the Old Testament. The Lord has already given you the New Testament, and you know a lot of what the picture in the box is. But I want you to realize that the Old Testament saints didn't have the picture of the box. They just had the puzzle. And what we want to do this morning is to try to pretend like we're Old Testament saints. It's a little bit before the time of Jesus, let's say about uh, 10 B.C. Jesus is going to be born in 5 or 6 B.C. It's about 10 B.C. And you've got this Old Testament scripture. I do want you to know that if you were uh, an Israelite living in about 10 B.C., you would have all the Old Testament from Genesis through to Malachi. If you were following the Hebrew order, exactly the same books, but it would go Genesis through Second Chronicles, okay? Now, what we want to do this morning as Old Testament saints that are reading our Bible, we're going to start out and we need to put together with realizing that we don't have the picture on the cover of the box. We want to begin by getting these little pieces here that have the straight line. We want to get the corners, the structure of the puzzle we're putting together. Now, the key theme that gives us the beginning, really, of the the structure of the outside of the puzzle is what I've been telling you all along. You probably are tired of hearing hearing of it, but the key verse of the Bible, the thematic verse of the Bible is Genesis 3.15. Turn there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As you turn to Genesis 3.15, you're in the curse section. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talks about the creation of a beautiful world, a beautiful universe, a beautiful garden, but it's focused on planet Earth. God is the great king of the universe, according to the biblical story. That's one of the great outline, the structure of the story. This is going to be like a, a marvelous fairy tale, a great 
story, only, and it's a royal story, only this story is for real. And God presents himself as the great king, but he creates a man named Adam, and Adam is supposed to be God's king that's going to rule under him, especially beginning in the Garden of Eden. That's the essential part of the story. But things go haywire, just like a really fast-moving TV drama. Automatically, I mean, almost just before things even begin to get going, a serpent, the bad guy, appears in the story. This serpent comes, he entices Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve sin. They disobey the command of God. The basic structure that you have here is you have this good, marvelous God. All the way through the Bible, you're presented with this good, marvelous, gracious God who's pouring out his blessings on people. He gives simple commands. We begin with just one command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of all the trees in the garden, just don't eat this one. That's the basic structure of the story. Adam and Eve have to face a decision, and we suddenly have thrown to this story this great opponent to God. All that we know in Genesis 3 is that he, in Genesis 2, is that he's a serpent. He's one of God's creations, and he begins to be the antagonist to God's story. God said, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of evil, you will surely die. The serpent says, oh, no, no, you're not going to die. God knows you're going to be like him, and he tells a lie. You're going to live if you disobey the God of the universe. And Adam and Eve join the bad seed. God shows up as Adam and Eve are hiding. Men are running away from God. Instead of running towards him, they're hiding in the bushes. God says to Adam, where are you? And he automatically begins to make excuses. That I realized I was naked. I ran away from you. The woman that you gave me has done all this mess. And then we have God addressing the serpent, addressing the woman, and addressing Adam. And in the address to the serpent, he introduces what's going to be the story of the Bible for the rest of the Bible. And let's look at it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says in Genesis 3, 15, that the Lord is going to put a great conflict in the universe. And every good story has to have that kind of a context. I'll put enmity. I'm going to put hatred. I'm going to produce war. I'm going to produce violence. There's going to be all kinds of struggle in this story. It's going to be between you, that's the serpent, and the woman. And it's going to be between her offspring or her seed, what the woman generates, and what the serpent generates. So that's the big conflict all the way through the Bible. And I challenge you, I want you, when you read the Bible, whenever you read, in fact, any story that you read, you want to ask yourself, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Any movie that you go to, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? Any, any TV program that you're watching, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? As you're reading the story of the Bible, you want to ask yourself, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And God is saying that the seed of the woman is going to represent the good seed. They're the good seeds. And he says those that choose to follow the serpent are going to be the bad seeds. And right away in the story, we have Adam and Eve choosing to join the bad seeds to follow the serpent and obey him, but they respond to God's promise because they accept the coverings that he provides for them and we're introduced to this idea that the, our fathers and mothers of the human race begin by choosing the bad seed, but then they respond to God's promise. Now, what is God's promise? It's this. Look at it. He, it says, will crush. He's singular. A great masculine Son of a woman is going to powerfully crush the serpent's head. And yet, in doing so, he's going to be struck 
in the heel. He, the serpent, is going to be crushed by this great male deliverer. So right there at the beginning of the Bible, we're introduced to this great drama that we want to be looking all the way through the Bible for. We want to look for the good seed and the bad seed. And then we want to look for this great male deliverer that's going to come. Now, Genesis 1 through 11 tells the story of the human race and the story of all the nations. And it's the story of what flows out from Adam and Eve. And what flows out from Adam and Eve is a murderous son, Cain. And he produces a murderous generation. And God in Genesis 6 says that all, he looks over the world, violence is increasing. Immorality is increasing. And that's all in the original story of the Bible. Yet, God finds a man, Noah, that found grace in his eyes. And Noah responds to the Lord, and the Lord tells him, Noah, if you build an ark, you'll make it through the time of judgment. This is essential to the story. The whole world's divided up into bad seeds, good seed. There are followers of the Lord, that, like Methuselah would be one of them. Seth is the very first one after Abel. And I gave you all of those good seeds. They're living and dying. But we come to this crucial decision time in the days of Noah. As Methuselah ends his life, a great challenge is going to take place. And God is going to step into history. So in the first few chapters of the Bible, you have this whole drama acted out. The great creator is going to look down and his people, his human race that he generated, many of them are rebelling against him. They're violent, they're immoral, and he's going to challenge them. He's going to send a great judgment. But if they get in the ark, they're going to be saved. Hardly anybody listens. Just Noah and his family gets in the ark, and then the rains came, and God brings terrible judgment. So we have a horrible, horrific judgment against the bad seeds, those that murdered, those that were immoral. That's the idea of Genesis. God brings Noah and his family safely through, and we start in again, and God begins to create the good seed through the line of Noah. But we find that just like with Adam and Eve, many of Noah's family begin to turn away from him. We come to the story of the Tower of Babel, and we have, again, the human race not listening to God, not saying, let's be fruitful and multiply and go spread out all over the earth. Instead, we have them going to build a great city. We're going to stay right here in the, in the Shinar Valley, on the plains of Shinar. We're going to build a tower that will give us a name. We're going to use our technology to do that. And we're not going to spread it all over the earth. And the Lord changes their languages, and they have to spread all over the earth. And that's Genesis 1 through 11. What I want you to see is that the whole story of the Bible is enacted in Genesis 1 through 11, so that when you're reading it, you need to understand that. There's going to be a great conflict. God's the great king. He sets up human beings who are supposed to be his representatives ruling over his creation. They turn away from him. Some of them respond to his promise of grace. But Genesis 1 through 11, we haven't found a serpent slayer. Cain wasn't the serpent slayer. He murdered his brother. Abel isn't the serpent slayer. He got killed by his brother. Noah looks like a great serpent slayer, but as we come to the end of Genesis 1 through 11, Noah gets drunk in his tent and he curses his son Canaan. So he is a failure. So when we get through Genesis 1 through 11, we have this drama. There was a great serpent slayer that got the human race, at least his family, through the great deluge, through the great judgment, but he turns out to disappoint us. So it makes us hungry. 
And I want you to feel that. As you read Genesis 1 through 11, one of the purposes that Moses has for you is he wants his Old Testament people to get hungry for a great male child, a serpent slayer, who's not going to let us down. And he wants us to realize that this is a really big story. In fact, from Genesis 12 all the way to the book of Revelation, you have very similar, a very similar plot line that you had in Genesis 1 through 11. You're going to have God reaching forth, good seeds, bad seed. You're going to have God threatening judgment, not going to flood the earth, but we're going to end just to jump ahead in the story in the book of Revelation. And Second Peter is going to tell us we're going to have the world judge with a great fire. And there's going to be those that trust in the ark that God provides, and they're going to make it through and have eternal life. And there's going to be those that choose not to enter the ark that God provides. They're not going to make it through the waters safely. They're going to be destroyed. And only this time it's not going to be water. It's going to be the fire of the judgment. I want you to begin to think about you live in a world where from the beginning of time, the eternal God of the universe has been giving this kind of a storyline. So Genesis 1 through 11 introduces you to the whole story of the Bible. It's going to be a story of there's a great king that has given tremendous blessings to the human race. They choose to join the serpent, rebel against him in terrible judgment. He has to wipe them out. But there's some that respond to the gracious promise of God. Genesis chapter 11 closes with a big pregnant issue. The nations are beginning to spread. People are going all over the earth. And the issue comes, big question, what's God going to do to reach the nations? Will he just let them wander forever, or will he do something about them? Genesis 12 is the answer. So we've got this great big outside the puzzle together. It's a story of great conflict. It's an exciting story. Good guys and bad guys. We have real powerful, a really powerful bad guy called the serpent. And he's murderous and he's lying and he's deceptive and he's immoral. And he's doing everything he can to hurt the human race. We've got a great God that's trying to, to save people from his lies and his deception. And yet he's also a just king that executes judgment against those that join the serpent's violence. At Genesis 11, the big issue is, what's God going to do for the nations? And now he begins another story, and this fills in some of the other corners. And God reaches down in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and he calls Abraham, one individual man. So I talk about the great conflict. I talk about the bad seed versus the good seed. I talked about the beginning of Adam and Eve. I've talked to you about Noah and his family, which is the next major threat in the story. Now we move into the threat of the story that's going to be the rest of the Old Testament. It's going to be the story of Abraham and his family. So we move from the story of Adam to the story of Noah. And now we move to the story of Abraham and his family. And the big question we ask is, how is this going to bring us the great male serpent slayer? And how is God going to work? And God makes a promise to this Abraham. Genesis 12, he calls this idolater who's listening to his voice in this very cosmopolitan city of Ur. He says, Abraham, I want you to leave your family. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. If you'll obey me, if you'll follow my command that I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you a land, first of all. I'm going to give you the land that the Canaanites now possess. Number two, I'm going to make you a numerous people. Even though you don't have any children now, I'm going to make you an abundant people. And the third thing he promises is I'm going to somehow bless all the world through you. And Abraham acts on that promise. As you're reading the book of Genesis, Moses wants you to understand that that's the heartbeat of the story. 
Abraham is wandering up and down the land. Isaac, his son, wanders up and down the land. They reenact very similar episodes. Jacob leaves the promised land, and then he comes back. And he ends up the, the, the fathers of the 12 sons of, of, of Jacob. He comes back to the land, and with his 12 sons, he's living in the land. And then we have the Joseph story. That's how it comes together. It's very important to understand that God is beginning now to work in one specific family, and that's going to be the story through the rest of the Old Testament. How are the sons of Abraham going to respond to God's promise to them? And will they be able to produce the great male deliverer? Will they be able to conquer the evil that's within them? That's the threat to the story. Now, when we go through, we go through Abraham, we go through Isaac, we go through Jacob, we come to the Joseph story which is a really pivotal story, the whole last part of Genesis. The children of Israel go down into, into Egypt and they're preserved. But then we move into, in the book of Exodus, the people who become enslaved. Great tension. Will Pharaoh be able to wipe out God's chosen people, the people of Abraham, the people of Israel that have now become a, a numerous people? And God raises up, right in Genesis chapter 1, a great male deliverer. He raises up Moses. The babies are being destroyed in, in, in Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses' family preserved this little baby. He's put into the river, and in a marvelously ironic turn of events, Pharaoh's daughter, the very Pharaoh that's trying to destroy all the baby Israelites, has a daughter that sees a baby Israelite, saves a little boy, and he's going to become the great deliverer. You need to follow that story. And that leads us to Mount Sinai. And you know all the story. They're delivered through the, through from Egypt. They're delivered by grace. God destroys those that want to destroy them, and He brings them to the Mount Sinai. And in order to stand the rhythm of the Bible, it's just like being back in some way in the Garden of Eden again. Same kind of a story. God is going to bring them to a great land. He's going to reveal simple laws to them that if they'll obey Him, they'll be blessed. So on Mount Sinai. It's very parallel to Adam in the garden receiving the command of God, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Only now with Moses is, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart. Don't have any gods before me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Trust your, your family relationships. Don't commit adultery. You have a right to your private material possessions. Don't steal. You have a right to, to your reputation, so don't bear false witness. And on and on I could go with the outline of marvelous, beautiful commands that God has given us. And the children of Israel say, yes, God, we will obey you. We will follow you. And God says, well, then I'll be your God, and you will be my people. And that's going to be the next story. Just like in the Garden of Eden, Adam says, yes, I'm going to obey you. Eve's going to obey the Lord. Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 2, 3, I mean, they fall into sin. What we have immediately at the end of the book of Exodus is the golden calf incident. And the people, instead of responding to God's simple command, they turn away from him. And it raises a big issue. God has a big argument with Moses. Should I destroy the people? And I want you to feel that this is very real. God is wrestling with, I have rebellious, evil people. And they are serpent seed. They're acting like him. They're acting violently. They are acting immorally towards one another. They are deceiving one another. How can I allow this terrible uh, moral disease to continue? And Moses intercedes as the great serpent slayer. You might think. 
Moses is this great servant slayer. He's going he's to preserve the people. So he intercedes for the Lord, and the Lord listens to Moses. So he intercedes with his father, and he saves his people from judgment. And so that's a very important plot line that I need to be looking for. It's a great, great male deliverer that cries out to God on behalf of his people for their sin. We have all that story taking place. What I want you to understand is you're studying the Bible, the promises to Moses, to, I mean to, to Abraham. Only God is responsible for filling the promise of the land, of the seed, and the blessing. But when you come to this promise, the Sinaitic promise, and the covenant that God is making with Moses, it's bilateral. It, it involves both the people and Israel. It depends upon them. And the big issue is, is raised, will they obey this promise? So we have a really key promise, a covenant with Abraham, which only God's going to keep. We have a promise with Sinai that's very much like what happened in the Garden of Eden. Moral rules given, man disobeys, and then God somehow is faithful. Mount Sinai, the same kind of a dynamic taking place. Then we move to, and then I take this all the way through, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses dies and he disappoints us. Because he disobeyed the Lord at the very end, he strikes the rock again, and the Lord doesn't let him go into the Holy Land. So again, we're disappointed. What we thought was the great serpent slayer doesn't make us. That doesn't make it. He disappoints us. So it makes us hunger again. Moses wasn't the leader that really conquered the, the, the serpent. Then you move all the way through. Joshua judges Ruth. Ruth tells you this incredible story. It looks like God is absent. Gives you this weird genealogy. And as you put together the genealogy, it leads us to a man named David. And that leads us to the next major covenant, the next major promise that God's going to build. And this covenant is going to be like the covenant he made with Abraham. It builds on it. God says, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. You're going to be given a land. You're going to become a great nation. And through this great individual that you'll produce, all the world is going to be blessed. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to his prophet Nathan, David, you're the man. Remember the background of the story? David wants to build a holy place for God to dwell with his people. God says, no, you're a man of war. I've used you to defeat the Philistines. Your son Solomon is going to be able to do that, but you're not going to be able to build my temple, even though you've collected all the the material to do it. But I'm going to do something even greater for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says that I'm going to produce a son from you, and he's going to disobey me, and Solomon does. But I'm not going to withdraw my spirit from him or my blessing from him. I'm not going to change the dynastic line. Like when Saul disobeyed the Lord, the Lord changed the dynastic line. God promises King David that he is going to be the kingly line that's going to fulfill the promises. Adam was supposed to be a great king with his queen Eve that ruled over God's kingdom as his representative. That's what man was created to do. God is telling King David, David, it's going to be your family that's going to produce this great king that's going to rule over my creation. And there will never fail a male heir from your throne. And eventually, this great serpent slayer is going to come through you. That is an incredible furtherance of God's kingdom program. And so when David receives that news, we're all saying, 
When Solomon's born, we know he's not going to be the king, but then the subsequent Davidic kings that are born, we're saying, is this the king? Is this the king? So as you're reading through Second King, the First and Second Chronicles, every one of the kings of David, you're saying in the southern kingdom of Judah, you're saying, maybe this is the king. But when we get through all those books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, we're disappointed again. None of those kings consistently conquer the serpent. Every one of them let us down. And again, just like we were hungry with Moses, we're hungry with King David. Now that leads us to the prophets. As we move through these covenants, there's this great disappointment. The kingdom of David, if you know the history, the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon go to great heights. It's the largest geographical area that Israel controls in the Old, in the old, uh, in the old Testament. Then the kingdom divides, and the northern kingdom doesn't produce any kings that are good seeds. The southern kingdom produces just a few. And both kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, end up in devastation, and they're put into captivity. And as the kings are wrestling with their obedience to the Lord, the Lord raises up spokesmen for himself, and Jeremiah is one of those key spokesmen, And the Lord, Ezekiel is another one, and we could have used Ezekiel this morning, but Jeremiah is raised up by the Lord. And in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah, after looking at the Babylonian Empire coming in and destroying his people, it looks like the Davidic kings are going to disappear. Jeremiah receives a message from the Holy Spirit that God is going to give a new covenant. And God's going to deal with what's really wrong with the people. On Mount Sinai, God gave laws that you could put up on the walls of your courthouse. You could put up on the walls of your school in ancient Israel, not necessarily in modern America. And God said, you know, you obey these things, but it's all external. But Jeremiah says that God is going to be another covenant where God's going to write his laws on our heart. And that's what Jeremiah 31 is all about. And Jeremiah comes right as the Babylonians are coming and squashing the southern kingdom, period of great destruction. And Jeremiah receives this message. There's going to be another day when God initiates a new covenant, and this covenant is going to provide for the forgiveness of sins. And it's going to deal with our internal problem. So we put all these covenants together. We have a covenant with Adam and Eve. And it's the promise that if they'll obey God, they'll be able to enjoy the garden. They disobey the covenant, but God is still gracious. He promises and the curse against the serpent. He's going to raise up a great male deliverer. Noah, the story of Noah takes place. Noah is not the great deliverer, but he does provide this great deliverance where the human race is preserved. Then we come to the story of Abraham and the whole rest of the Old Testament is dealing with what Abraham produces. And we have Abraham's promise from God that somehow through him there's going to be a great blessing to all the earth through his seed. Then we have Moses coming at Mount Sinai, very much like what happened in the Garden of Eden, only now it's with a whole nation, and the nation disappoints us. Moses disappoints us. This comes down to the prophet Jeremiah, who said, but there's going to be another day when God makes a new covenant. So that's the basic outline. You've got the whole structure of the outside. So, for example, when you're reading Genesis through Deuteronomy, you need to be thinking, chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis deal with the nations and what God can do with the nations. 
Genesis 12, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, is going to deal with how God's going to reach the nations through an individual nation called the children of Abraham, and that becomes focused on a promise to King David. It's going to be a Davidic king that's going to rule. Now, that's a story of history according to the Bible. That's the outside of the circle. Now, in the middle of all this, I've been talking all the way through about a picture. When you take a puzzle... When you get it all done, and I told you the Old Testament saints living in about 10 BC, they couldn't put all the story together. They didn't have the outside of the box. They didn't have the picture. So as you put a puzzle together, if you, if you make it blind, as you get the outside together, then you can start filling in the inside. And as we close today, all I can do is to whet your appetite for how the Old Testament starts to put together in every one of these different periods, from, Mo, the Mo, from Moses, from King David, and then from the prophets at the end, how they put together the inside, and we end up with a picture. And this is what I want all of you to get. Everything I'm telling you this morning was totally completed before Jesus of Nazareth was born in 5 or 6 BC. Every one of the young people need to understand that. And, you, and every one of the adults need to understand that. You need to get the import of what we're talking about. Because whoever fills in this picture is the person that's going to deliver you. It's the person that's going to conquer violence. It's the person that's going to conquer immorality. It's the person that you need to worship, you need to praise. And every one of you in your heart decide who the picture in your life is going to be, what the picture is going to be that I'm going to give everything for. And all I can do as we close here, and you can do it during the rest of the week, is I'm going to try to bring together, just give you a little feel for the way that this picture is put together. From Moses, just, just deal with Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Whoever, as we get the outside of, this, of the puzzle together, we begin to fill in the picture. It's got to be a male child. I already told you, Genesis 3.15. It's got to be a male child that's born of a woman. So it has to be a human being that's born of a human mom. That's the very first thing. Genesis 6 through 11, it needs, there's an idea that whoever this great serpent slayer is going to be, he's got to be like an ark that can get us through God's judgment. That's the thrust of the story. Whoever this great deliverer is going to be, he's going to be able to withstand God's judgment, gather those who trust into him, in, in him, and carry them through it. He's going to be like a great ark. That's the, that's the theme of the story. And it whets your appetite. Who's that going to be? He also needs to be, according to Genesis 12, 3, he needs to be a son of Abraham. It's got to be a Jewish man. So be careful how you feel about Jewish people. Whoever this great deliverer is, he's a Jew. He's got to be a son of Abraham because the story boils down in Genesis chapter 22. It's not going to be from the Ishmaelites. It's going to be from Isaac. And Genesis 22 gives us a really weird part of the puzzle. And in the Old Testament, this weird part of the puzzle doesn't fit very well anywhere. Because in Genesis 22, God suddenly tells Abraham to kill the promised son as a sacrifice. And God stops him from doing so and provides another ram that can take his place. But we've got this weird story sticking out there. It's like one of those puzzle pieces that you go, man, what in the world? This piece doesn't fit in anywhere. And I want you to hold on to that piece. Whoever this great serpent slayer is, somehow it's going, to destroy, it's going to evolve a story where a daddy is willing to sacrifice his son as a sacrifice for sin, as a covering for sin. 
Genesis 49 and the story of Judah and the story of Joseph. Genesis 49 narrowed it down. The great serpent slayer needs to be not just a son of Abraham, but a particular son from the tribe of Judah. And this son from the tribe of Judah is going to be a great king that's going to rule, that's going to fulfill God's intent of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We got a son in Exodus chapter 12. Whoever this son is, he's going to be like a Passover lamb. When God's curse of judgment comes over the nation of Israel, there's a Passover lamb whose blood is put on the doorpost, and he, when that blood is from the doorpost, this Passover lamb saves you from the, from the agony and the curse of death. Whoever this great serpent slayer is going to be, it has to somehow bring the story of Passover to a fuller meaning, to a meaning that we, that kind of brings the pieces of the puzzle together. It's got to be a rock that will give living water that will last forever. According to the book of Exodus, we've got Moses being someone that can deliver water. So this needs to be a greater than Moses that can give us water that lasts. We could go on and on. It ends up in numbers. It has to be a star that comes from Jacob's children, the Israelite. And then finally, we close Moses' revelation with he needs to be a prophet. According to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, that's greater than Moses. Now, that's what they had. And during the week, go back to those passages. I want you to know that when the Pentateuch was completed, that's the picture they had. This is what the great serpent slayer is going to look like. King David begins to fill in the pieces of the puzzles even more. It's got to be a son of David who will somehow rule forever. It's got to be a son of David who will, de- who will be declared by God to be God's own son. Chapter 2 of, of Psalms. We could go to Psalm 16. We'd study that together just to remind you. And that's a really important one. Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Somehow this great serpent slayer is not going to decay in the grave. David decayed in the grave, but his great son that's going to come is not going to decay in the grave. So read Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Great big piece of the puzzle. Whoever this great servant slayer is, he's not going to decay in the grave. He's going to rise again from the dead. Psalm 22 is a portion from the revelation of King David that you need to look at carefully. Because Psalm 22 pictures someone who is abandoned by his friends. He's mocked. He has enemies that are attacking him. It talks about him being rejected. It talks about his clothes being gambled about. As they kill him, as they gamble over who's going to get his clothes, that's about a thousand years before Jesus came that they're doing that. It talks about him, him being slain, and yet somehow at the end of Psalm 22, he's still alive. So I want you to read the psalm and think about it. These are the little pieces of the puzzle that I'm getting. Let's come to the prophets. This has to be a prophet. Isaiah 53 is the high point of the story so far. And what Isaiah 53 does is it uses a different imagery. Instead of talking about a son of David who's going to be a great king, who's going to set up an eternal kingdom that conquers all of Israel's enemies and bring them into the land and they live forever, evermore, Isaiah 53 talks about a strange, suffering servant. He's going to be a son of man, just a normal human being, and he fulfills the disappointment of the Persian king Cyrus in the book of Isaiah who the people of Israel thought was the great deliverer because he was going to let them go back. But it talks about the suffering servant and it tells a really weird story that he's rejected, he's not accepted by his people, he grows up in obscurity, and he ends up being a guilt offering. He dies as a sin offering. And yet somehow... At the end of this section of Isaiah 53, he sees many children. 
and he sees the light of life, and we have a resurrection narrative again. Isaiah 53, brothers and sisters, is totally complete long before Jesus Christ was born, and it, it's the biggest parts of this puzzle that you need to put together. Isaiah 53 gives this incredible scenario of what this great son of man, this great suffering servant, and when you put the piece of the puzzle together, it has to be a son of Judah that's going to be the son of man. It's going to be a son of David that's going to be the son of man as you put this story together. I want to close with, as you get to the very end of the Bible, turn to the end of your Old Testament, which is the, the order probably that Jesus used, because a lot of the Jewish people did. He also used the order that Hebrews used. But your Bible ends in the book of Malachi with some really important verses. I want you to look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. There the Lord says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. If you look at the end of the book of Malachi, it says this. In verse 5, Malachi 4, verse 5, See, I will send you the prophet, Elijah, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the heart of the father to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. It says, and then back in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then suddenly the Lord will come to you, the one that you're seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, let me put that together for you. The the Old Testament closes with a promise that there's going to be a great prophet, and it calls him Elijah. And in the Old Testament, like it talks about King David coming, and that often means the son of David. So here, it could easily be a prophet that's like Elijah. Elijah lived outside in the open. He wore kind of weird clothes. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was a rough-hoon kind of a man. And he's going to turn the heart of the Father, going to put families back together again. When that Elijah comes, then God promises that the Lord himself is going to show up in his temple. So that puts another piece of the puzzle, that when this prophet like Elijah comes... That's going to inaugurate God's kingdom, and somehow the Lord's going to show up in its temple. Now, it's 10 BC, as we close today. The world is controlled by the Romans. They've conquered the Holy Land. Hardly anybody knows who the sons of David are because they're living in a very obscure part of northern Galilee. It looks like God's plan, his promise to Adam and Eve, His promise to Abraham, his promise to Moses, his promise to David, his promise through Malachi the prophet, it looks like it's all over. Suddenly, when we study the next time together, we're going to begin by the genealogies reviewing everything I gave you today in Matthew. And then in the heartbeat of the message, we're going to have a weird guy that shows up that people say he's dressed like Elijah and he says this, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, I want you to turn around because the kingdom of God has shown up. You need to prepare your heart. And that's going to be how the New Testament begins to say, who's the one, whose picture is it, that fulfills all those promises of the Old Testament. And that's how the Old Testament is leading to the New Testament. It's pregnant. All the major saviors in the Old Testament let us down. But they point us towards a great serpent slayer that's going to never let us down. And obviously you've looked, because you're New Testament believers, a lot of you, you've looked at the cover 
And you know that the picture is Jesus. But as we begin his story in New Testament, I want you to let the story unfold again. I want you, what we're going to be doing, like I gave you just a little inkling. I mean, we could spend all day long going through Genesis, Exodus, and I could give you a million more pieces to the puzzle that the Old Testament was giving you. And part of what I want you to feel today is it's not like the prophet Micah, for example, said, I want you to know that Jesus of Nazareth is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. It's not what he says. He doesn't say that. What he says in the book of Micah is you're hungry for a great Davidic king. There's going to be a great ruler that will fulfill the promises of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And I want you to know that just like King David was born in Bethlehem, that his great future son will be born in Bethlehem. And that's what Micah tells you. So when you get to Christmas time and you begin to read Matthew and Luke and they suddenly tell you about the Roman emperor declaring a decree, Joseph and Mary having to move to Bethlehem, the pieces of the puzzle are, it's one of those times when putting the piece of the puzzle together, you go, man, that's, that's working. And that's what I want you to feel. As we close today, though, in my own life, it's what I've told you today is why I've given my whole life to helping people to know about Jesus. I want every one of you to be clear on what the Old Testament's saying about who Jesus is. He's the king, the one that's the new Adam that has the right to rule not over the Garden of Eden alone, but over all the universe, and I want to join with him. I want to live all my life close to him. He is the great ark that's going to carry me through the curse of God. He's the one that can overcome sin in my life. He is the great promised Abrahamic son who somehow when people trust in him, I want you to know as you leave here, when you live close to Jesus, you bless everyone you're around. You bring blessing to to the nations. You're hungry to take his message out from this building into all the world. And you bring blessing because that's what Jesus does. In Abraham, all the nations of the earth, all the ethnic groups on the earth will be blessed. He's the king that never dies. David was promised. You're going to have an heir who will never, who you'll never fail. He'll always be there. Jesus rises again from the dead. So today, Jesus is the Davidic king ruling at the right hand of God, and you're the beginning of his rule on planet earth. Those are just the beginning. I'm just kind of whetting your appetite, and I know that I've lickety-splitted through the whole Old Testament. In 45 minutes, you just did the whole Old Testament from now on out in your life, I want you to be able, whenever you go to the Old Testament, I want you to know where you are. And then what I'm going to start doing now in our New Testament series is we're going to be going through the different books, and I'm going to be trying to pick out the the, the key pieces, for example, next week that Matthew and Mark put together for you. So you'll see how Matthew and Mark saw those pieces in the Old Testament, and they saw it coming together in the person of Jesus. And it will give you a tremendous confidence to your faith. It will challenge you to, to, to respond to that message. Turn around. Turn around. Repent. You need to get your heart right because the kingdom of God has come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, so many of us have studied your word for many, many years, and we never see how it all goes together. We kind of read a book here and a book there. We hear messages from one verse, and then we skip to another verse, but we never quite get the flow of your story. And Lord, as we try to just kind of look at the whole big picture and how you structure the Old Testament and the story that you told, 
I'd ask you, Lord, that we would realize that we've become part of the story, that we're kind of living in the middle of the story because a great judgment is coming in the future that the, that the New Testament revelation is going to close in. And it's so important to be a good seed person that responds to the serpent slayer, Jesus. And I pray that no one here would miss that trusting in him, that dependence upon him, that we would realize that blessed is he that come to the name of the Lord as a praise chorus that's sung to Jesus as the ultimate son of Abraham, the ultimate son of David, the ultimate son of God. And Lord, I want to pray that we would enthrone him today as we sing, as we live in our families, as we go out into our busy careers. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus is the serpent slayer, that one day will give us freedom from the sweat and the toil of labor, and we'll be able to rest in a holy holiday that's going to last forever and ever and ever. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make these great promises that only Jesus can fulfill, the driving force of every one of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.